Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Deep Dive podcast here on the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I suppose that's a little bit redundant. I'm Robert Winfrey, and uh, these are, for the record, these are a project intended to help keep me busy uh, because I enjoy doing them and because a few of you out there seem to like them. The last one that was a look at Dominic Cruz seems to have done relatively well, and I got a request for one about tonight's subject. Not whenever you happen to be listening to this. I'm recording this at about 2.30 in the morning because I'm weird. Uh, tonight we are discussing former UFC light heavyweight champion and MMA great Mauricio Shogun Hua. Shogun is a very interesting case study in some respects. He represents a great deal of potential early in his career. Someone who realizes it. Someone who falls off. And, I mean, Shogun is, as of this recording, at least not retired. Uh, (laughs) We'll get into his later career somewhat more naturally towards the end of the program. But he's someone that captured the imagination of a generation of fans. And if you're only of the more recent generation of MMA fans, you know, someone who came in, I don't mean this disparagingly, but if you came in in the Rousey or McGregor kind of waves of fan of fandom, you probably didn't see any of Shogun's, you know, genuinely great, too many of Shogun's genuinely great fights. And you may not understand what was so special about him. So hopefully this can provide a little bit of education and at least my own personal insight to those of you who have never seen him, and the same to those of you who maybe did, who saw his early run through Pride, who saw his ascension to the UFC title, etc. And I'll, yeah, again, hopefully this is a interesting topic. I certainly had a lot of fun putting this together. I think up first this time around, I want to talk a little bit about some of the keys to understanding Shogun. In no small part because I think Shogun is one of the most perpetually misunderstood fighters in the sport. And that might be a bit of an odd thing to say, but to the majority of the fan base, either when he was at his peak or now, they tend to think of him more in the Vanderlei Silva style of fighting. They think of him as a striker, a maybe not as wild as Vanderlei, but an aggressive wannabe-on-the-feet, wannabe-swinging-leather, grabbing the Muay Thai clinch and killing you with knees. And don't get me wrong, he did some of the latter. But that really is... It's not a good way to understand Shogun's game and his success, by and large. Now, to be fair to those people, depending on which era of Shogun we're talking about, that might be more true than it was at the beginning. Uh, Certainly his most recent performances tend to be a little bit more on the... How do I say this? They tend to be more on the... What you would expect if all you saw was, you know, some, like, production notes on the guy uh, that were handed out. Um, In his prime, when he was at his best, Shogun wasn't really a striker in the way he was kind of sold as a striker. And some of that comes from his camp. He came from the Shootbox camp, which is a famous and infamous gym operating out of Brazil that produced a... It was primarily done under the tutelage of Rafael Cordero, who is still a very high-level coach. I think 
I don't know if he's still with King's MMA or not. Uh, he might be. But he's still a very respected coach, but part of his ethos when it comes to coaching is a lot of very hard sparring and a lot of aggression. And this is somewhat obvious in the fighters that that gym produced, Vanderlei Silva being kind of the poster boy for it. Shogun, uh, arguably more successful than Vanderlei. Uh, I would certainly argue more talented. Shogun's older brother Ninja, Marilio Ninja Hua. Uh, Anderson Silva trained with Shootbox for a while. And he wound up leaving for, I think, the Nogueras, the Nogueira brothers' camp. Uh, that might have been around the time the Nogueira brothers split from Brazilian top team. They were associated with them for a while. Uh, because they were a better fit, I think, for Anderson's style and what he was trying to develop than Shootbox was. Uh, Evangelista Cyborg Santos, uh, probably unfairly more well-known at this point for being the ex-husband of uh, Chris Cyborg Justino than his, for his own career, but his own MMA career was certainly nothing to hang your head about. Uh, again, for a slightly more modern MMA fans, the only thing you might know of his fighting career was the time MVP literally caved his skull in with a flying knee. But he had a long career. Uh, I mean, that uh, again, Evangelista has been fighting for a long time. Uh, and that's some good fights. He was not a scrub by any stretch of the imagination. So he comes from a camp that has, again, that kind of reputation. And then Shogun's first couple of fights in Pride under the Bushido banner, and then they just... You had to be a little bit more discerning, I think, than most fans were at the time. Even a lot of pundits were at the time. And it's only kind of with hindsight that what he was really doing kind of becomes a bit more apparent. Uh, Shogun is... It's a, all that set up is to say, I think if you want to understand how good Shogun was and really understand his skill set, you have to get away from the notion that he's a striker. Shogun is, I think, in, more accurately described as one of the best ground-and-pound artists the sport has seen. And that might seem a little bit odd if you're just thinking, but I've seen him do, you know, tornado, 360 tornado kicks, and uh, you know, he destroyed Rampage from the clinch, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to pretend that those things didn't happen, but if you look at what he tries to accomplish reliably, where he does his best work consistently, it's with his opponent on the ground and him in top position. Now, We'll get into his Pride run more a little bit more detail, but Pride in particular favored some of what he was able to do because he was able to attain top position over a downed opponent and then wasn't limited in his offensive tools the way that the unified rules of MMA do. Uh, he was allowed to soccer kick, to stomp, and those weren't really... I hate to say they weren't devastating. They were at times. But it was more you know, what those opened up for him as far as offensive opportunities go. And he did a lot of work just from you know, top position in your guard, passing to half guard, unloading on you, moving to mount. Shogun had a very, very good mount. And he unloaded a lot of guys from there. And then that's, that's just where most of his work was done. And again, partially because of the camp that he comes from and partially because of some of the highlights that you put together. If you just put together a highlight package of the guy, you're not really going to fixate on 
his ability to pass, his ability to land several hammer fists, uh, you know, to kind of break your posture, break your grips, and then pass again. You'll focus on him flying through the air, trying to stomp on your head, or again, the 360-degree tornado, tornado kick he landed, or you know, the soccer kicks and the clinch work against Rampage, all of which are fantastic, by the way. But it's it, it does not give you, I think, a really good picture of Shogun's attributes and what led to his greatest success. It really was his ability to secure takedowns and his ability to work consistently from the top. And that gets lost in the vast majority of discussions of his career, especially when we talk about his prime. It was very, very integral to his prime. Going back and rewatching a lot of his fights, that's very apparent to me. It was very, very key in his success. A few of the other things that really work in Shogun's favor, if you're trying to understand him, uh, he has maybe the best killer instinct that the sport has seen. There's not too many people better about getting a feel for when their opponent is hurt and then attacking and attacking and capitalizing on the in, on your opponent's weakness like that. Uh, in, in his prime, even a little bit after it, there weren't many people better than Shogun when it comes to just, oh, you're a little bit hurt, now I'm going to swarm on you. You know, the the old metaphor of the shark smelling blood in the water that was him if he smelled any of it and he and further to this killer instinct thing he had a good sense about when it was an, an appropriate time to push or when it was an appropriate time to okay you're hurt but you're not that hurt so let me continue to press but not get wild uh, that being said look at his career look at some of the early stuff again and Tell me how many times he lets somebody off the hook. It's a very, very small number. He had exceptional killer instinct. Uh, distance management. Now, this isn't to say Shogun was great at maintaining it, but knowing where he wanted to fight was a big part of his success, as it is with a lot of people. Knowing where you can fight well is important, knowing what distance that is. Shogun fought well, either all the way out when he was just in kicking range or all the way into the clinch when he could work knees or takedowns. Uh, Shogun never had uh, Vanderlei Silva's you know, propensity for, at least not in the early days. As, as his career has gone on, this has changed. But he was not the same kind of wild brawler that Vanderlei was. He was not a great puncher if we're talking about technique. Shogun had power. But one of the big, I think, uh, detriments to his entire career was that he never seemed to have a really good boxing game. Uh, which is sad, because he showed some good instincts on occasion. But punching in the pocket, uh, at no point in his career was that ever Shogun's strength. Uh, he was good about either... If you were on the end of his punches, he could make some stuff happen. But prolonged boxing, uh, you know, pocket work... Not a great strength of his. Now, his his power and his chin, in some cases, would carry him through some of those circumstances. But he was not a very slick infighter. He wanted to be kicking distance, or very end of his punches, or all the way into a clinch. Now, his hands have never been anything, technically speaking, to write home about. And it's something that, that has dogged him his entire career. And if, if there's a big deficit 
that's consistent. It is his his boxing and his technical punching. It's something he never really, I'd say, put a tremendous amount of effort into because I'm not sure how true that is, but it never really manifested itself in his performances. And it, it again, it's sad because it's something that could have helped him tremendously. Um, Shogun, in his prime and his best forms, was also an unbelievably dynamic fighter. Uh, the ability to again, close through distance, to secure takedowns, to explode, uh, were all very impressive. He was so good at... Uh, it's, it's hard to describe, really, in some cases. Um, he was so very good about proper, like, kinetic linkage. The ability to move all parts of your body and generate force all the way through them. I'm not sure if my verbiage is entirely correct here, but hopefully that will give you the idea. He was so good about pushing off with one leg and generating that force up through his body and then utilizing anything else to help further generate that power. It was a lot of, again, it's a lot of dynamic motion, but it's a lot of not just straight line, one-to-one, A-to-B, back and forth. It's a lot of shifting your weight. It's a lot of generating that extra force by moving it constantly. And there's there's positives and negatives to doing this as a fighter. I'm, I'm certainly not here to stump for it as the be-all, end-all, but if you want to watch someone do it properly, do it to kind of getting the maximum effect out of that kind of linkage of motion, he is absolutely one of the top guys in that MMA has to kind of get a look at. Um, another one, similar vein but different, is it deals with um, Fedor Emelianenko and his clinch game. If you look at Fedor's clinch game, he doesn't like the static clinch. Fedor will rock himself back and forth, even when he's at a disadvantageous position in terms of underhooks. He'll just rock back and forth to try and get some momentum going that he can then capitalize on. And again, slightly different application, but some of the same theory that, you know, there's motion going, the ability to push off with one side, generate force. And Shogun was, again, very, very adept at that if you look at his best form. Uh, So... Keep those in mind when we kind of talk. When you, whenever you watch some of his old fights, especially, look at how much, look at how many takedowns he gets. Look at how much of his work is done from top position. He's really, really good about that. That's where he does a lot of work, and that gets glossed over because it wasn't part of the narrative. I guess uh, you know, breaking a narrative label is a really difficult thing to do. Uh, you know, it, Leoto Machida. Uh, we'll talk about again when it comes to his series with Shogun, spent a long time trying to shake the quote-unquote boring moniker that got attached to him kind of partway through his first fight. It's hard to break that first impression. In the case of Shogun, his first couple of fights in Pride, and and the, you know, the camp he comes from, it just lent itself towards a narrative about who he was as a fighter that isn't necessarily accurate. And I think it's sad, because it does kind of a disservice to him and his body of work. Uh, One of the things I noted when he got to the UFC, 
Uh, anytime he would go for a takedown, someone on commentary, uh, be that Joe Rogan or Mike Goldberg, predominantly those two at the time, would do something to the effect of, oh, Shogun's going for a takedown. That's very interesting. I think he'd want to keep this standing. There is some version of that particular uh, observation about the fight in like his first four or five UFC fights. At that point, it's not an interesting deviation. It is the pattern. And it's a pattern that existed beforehand. And uh, there's a few of these fights in particular that we're going to get into if you want further evidence to kind of support my claim here. And, and you're free to refute me if you would like to cite specific examples. And again, the other big thing about Shogun, when we talk about understanding him like this, anyone who has fought as long as Shogun has, and as much as Shogun has, is going to change. Their game is going to evolve. They're physically going to break down, uh, etc., etc. I mean, this is being recorded in 2020. Shogun is not officially retired yet, and I believe the UFC was last working on the th- a third fight between him and Little Nog, Antonio Hogerio Noguera. Uh, so a guy who was planning to fight in 2020 uh, began his career in 2002, November of 2002. So... Coming up on 18 years, uh, we're over the 17-year mark, and he will probably get to 18 before he actually retires. So, 18 years, give or take, and 38 fights? Uh, That's a lot of material, especially when you consider how much of that was done. Uh, For the record, Shogun debuted in Pride in 2003, and has only ever fought since then for Pride or the UFC. He had a grand total of five fights outside of the two major organizations in the world at the time, and has only been with those two ever since. So there's a lot of footage on him and a lot of fights at a high level. So his game is going to change, and if you only look at his performances over the last, you know, four or five fights, uh, it... It is. It's different. It's not the same as he was when he was in his prime, for a variety of reasons. And there's a few of his later fights that I do want to talk about later towards the end. But point being, if you're kind of if you're listening to me and going, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. What about if you're going to reference anything after, say, his second fight with Dan Henderson? Uh, I'll I'll freely acknowledge that by the time we get to 2015 or so, he's a very different fighter for a variety of reasons. But I'm talking at the moment about understanding his prime and at him at his best and his run-up to the title. And he was, again, I think widely misunderstood by the general fan base. And uh, to be fair, I am not the first person to say, you know, Shogun's a great ground-and-pound artist, and that's really where the where he truly excelled. Uh, not the first guy to say it. I think a few other people have. Uh, I want to say Jack Slack did, or at least referenced it recently, so... Uh, but I may be misremembering that, so my apologies. If I'm the first one you're hearing say that, then... Well, stick around for the ride. Hear my evidence <laughs> before you decide to castigate me. And let's... Yeah, let's... So, just keep those in mind. Um, okay, the... You know, Shogun's first rise to prominence... Some of this has to do with... It actually didn't really come in... 
bear in mind, we're talking, you know, 2003 MMA, so there basically were, there was still a divide between the hardcore fans and the casual fans, but it was not nearly as wide, I think, as it is now. Now, if you were into the sport in that period of time, uh, you'd followed a lot of smaller shows because of how infrequently the major ones ran, and you'd try... The, there were more, the hardcore fan base made up, I think, a greater percentage of the total MMA fan base at that period of time than it does now. To be fair, also still probably in the minority relative to the casual fan base, but given how small the fan base was, it was just you know, a greater percentage. I think the first time the real hardcore fan base got a taste of Shogun actually came at a, a really odd event. It was uh, called IFC Global Domination. Uh, This was a one-night, partially a one-night tournament. Uh, It was an entire event, but over the course of this one event, there was a tournament where the winner would have to win three fights in one night. This was not an uncommon thing back in the early days of MMA. Uh, This tournament in particular is somewhat interesting because it features a bunch of people whose names you might recognize. Um... Shogun wins his opening match against uh, Eric Vanderlei and goes on to fight a gentleman by the name of Hanato Sobral. Sobral, to reach the semifinals, defeated Trevor Prangley, another a name hardcore fans might recognize. Uh, that was one half of the bracket. On the other side, a first-round matchup featured uh, Chael Sonnen and Forrest Griffin. Griffin would win that fight by triangle choke, and the other part of that bracket was... Uh, Jeremy Horn, I can't remember who he beat in the first round. But another name, hardcore fan fight fans will recognize that of Jeremy Horn. Uh, Horn won. Horn would go on to defeat Forrest Griffin in the semifinals in a pretty fun fight, actually. There's a lot of scrambling on that in that fight. Uh, Griffin hanging on the ground with Jeremy Horn, and then Jeremy Horn head kicks Forrest Griffin. Hanato uh, Sobral would submit Van... Uh, who would submit Shogun in the third round of their fight. His face got lumped up a bit during the course of that one. Uh, uh, Sobral would go on to win the whole thing, uh, beating Horn by decision in the finals. But, again, some names that you'll recognize, again, if we're talking just about Sobral, Hua, Sonnen, Griffin, Horn, every one of those guys fought for a UFC title. Two of them won. (laughs) Two of them are former UFC champions at this point. So it's it's a little-known event, but uh, some interesting names that came out of that. Anyway, the loss to Bob Lou at that point was... That's Hanato Sobral. Uh, that was Shogun's first loss. It was his fifth professional fight. And his performance in that tournament in general, and I think just kind of the position of favor that the shootbox gym had in Pride at the time, got him a ticket to Pride. He debuts initially in the Bushido kind of subset of Pride, uh, the initial, I don't know how long this lasted, and Pride was a, there's a lot of love for Pride, deservedly so, but Pride was kind of weird in, t- in places as well. Uh, initially, Pride proper, like the the Pride brand, was only heavyweight fights, basically. So they had the Bushido kind of subset for people who weren't heavyweights, and then eventually they kind of folded them all together, and Pride, the Pride banner would go on to just be host to, you know, a variety of weight classes. But his initial run through the Bushido, the Bushido, excuse me, uh, stuff was just 
It, it was just designed for small guys smaller than heavyweights. Uh, he debuts against a fellow by the name of uh, Akira Shoji, who was a Japanese professional wrestler as well as a mixed martial artist. Uh, retired with a losing uh, MMA record. But that wasn't uncommon. I'll f- uh, he did have some success in Pride. But his final record, I think, at the end of the day, uh, 14, 17, and 5. Uh, but, you know, just kind of a, a... Pride had a lot of professional wrestlers, given the crossover uh, that Japanese professional wrestling had with actual fighting. There was a much greater bit of connectivity between like actual catch wrestling and you know, the ability to fight and the perception of those two in Japanese professional wrestling than in, say, American professional wrestling or uh, Lucha Libre, the you know, Mexican professional wrestling. So the, the Japanese professional wrestlers were a, a bit more structured and a bit more like encouraged to actually know how to fight in... I'd say fight in reality because there's plenty of tough professional wrestlers out there, so don't take this when I say fight to mean that they were you know, incapable of handling themselves if things went south in a generalized capacity, but fighting in an organized, you know, specific set of rules was something that the Japanese professional wrestlers were kind of brought up with more than how the typical American professional wrestler was brought up. Uh, so, anyway, Shogun defeats him. Um, you can already see some of the stuff that will make him... You know, important, both positively and negatively. Uh, his punching is already not very great. I mean, he lands one that I think kind of helps set up the finish, but it's not great technically. His takedown defense isn't all the way there yet, but that's still something he's working on. Um, you already see, one of the other things you see is his deep half work. Uh, he uses, I think he uses, um, it's called the Noguera sweep, actually, after Big Nog, Antonio Rodrigo Noguera. Uh, from half guard, he uses that a fair bit. He has some you know, some uh, sweeps that he hits from that area to get on top. Uh, he's still a little bit raw in this fight if you rewatch it, but again, look kind of where he still works takedowns. He still works his top control. Um, you can see here, and given that he's a young fighter at this point, it's more forgivable. But it's something he never really fixes <laughs> consistently: uh, his lack of head movement. His head stays on the center line a lot. But he scores an impressive win, and, you know, he's very publicly a teammate of Vanderlei Silva, who is a burgeoning superstar in Pride at the time. He might have already been the champion, actually. I forget the timeline specifically on that. Uh, moves on and fights another name that will be recognizable to you know, hardcore fight fans, and Akihiro Gono. Uh, Gono fought for the UFC a few times, uh, fought in Bellator. Uh just a long-time veteran of the sport. I think he's still going, actually. Um, yeah, Gono fought in May of last year, and I think probably, <laughs> yeah, might still be looking to fight. So, uh, yeah, dude's been around. Uh, and at the time of this fight, actually, Gono was. Let's see this week. He had a long run in Pancrase before this. And coming into this fight, actually, he hadn't lost in quite some time. He had a couple of draws, but he hadn't lost since uh, 
2001, and this fight took place in 2004. So a long run there. One of the better runs of Gono's career, actually, is only marred by this loss. He went on to win... Uh, actually, he won eight, seven out of his next eight fights after losing to Hua, the only loss coming to Dan Henderson. So, again, one of the best runs of his career. That actually includes a submission over Gegard Mousasi. Uh, so, point being, Gono, not a scrub. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a lot more experienced than Shogun, and Shogun defeats him, uh, officially with soccer kicks, and this is one of the things that you start seeing a little bit more of from Shogun here as he gets a better feel for how to use the rule set. Um, you see more of his tie clinch, the double-collar tie uh, in this particular fight. He controls Gono fairly well with it. Uh, throws more leg kicks. One of the things that you see here is, and this will is another thing that will not completely dog him throughout his career, but... Uh, his ring craft, his ring generalship, he follows Gono a lot, doesn't cut him off as much as you'd like to see. He will, uh, again, he fixes some of this later in his career, but right now it's very, very evident. He, uh, you know, uh, also relentless forward pressure. Uh, that's kind of, again, he, he follows Gono, but he never really stops moving forward, if nothing else. Uh, after defeating Gono, he fights... Uh, forget this gentleman's first name, Yashihito Namakawa, uh, and stops him in the first round. I mean, for the record, the Gono fight went a little over nine minutes, and given that Pride had a ten-minute first round, uh, which was a brutal, brutal thing. Um, not something, you know, something that I might like to see kind of experimented with again in contemporary MMA, just out of my own idle curiosity. Uh, anyway. Uh, the Namakawa fight, he finishes at 6.02 of the first. And Namakawa, ha again, another guy with a solid overall career. Um, unfortunately for him, <laughs> uh, a lot of it was just uh, you know, slightly smaller. Uh, I mean, I hate, I hate to call, you know, rings and deep small, but uh, you know, somewhat relative. They were a little bit on the smaller side. Uh, this was, in fact, I think... this He only fought twice in Pride? Yeah, he never got off the Bushido, the Bushido uh, rung. Uh, he won his first... Yeah, uh, But still, at the time they fought, he was 16 and 12. So, again, not the greatest record, but a lot of experience, if nothing else, in Shogun somewhat predictably runs through him. He was... I think by this point, the pride was starting to get a feel for what they might have on their hands with this guy. Um, his clinch work is again showed off here. His takedown defense is much better. He really showcases his top game for the first time in this fight. You'd seen it a little bit in the previous fights, but not nearly as much. If we're talking traditional top game, he spent... He's, he spends more time actually on top, like in guard, passing. Uh, Shogun's passing game is, especially in Pride, was very underappreciated. He could pass through a lot. Of, he passed through a lot of guys' guards, um, and finished this one, I believe, from the mount. And Shogun's mount, like I mentioned before, pretty dangerous, and he could get there. He was good about getting there. And 
at this point, I think they knew what they had on their hands in this guy. So they bring him up to the you know, Pride uh, banner proper. With At Pride 29, he fights Hiromitsu Kanahara. Um, this is a designed... Uh, uh, Pride had some odd matchmaking tendencies. They would take some great fighters and throw them to the wolves early. Um, Actually, I think Luke Thomas had a thing on his personal YouTube channel recently talking about Hidehiko Yoshida, where he talks a bit about how quickly Yoshida wound up, you know, fighting kind of near the top, you know, guys near the top. At the same time, there would be occasions when they would give you an easier fight, Um, you know, a a more manageable task. Uh, In the case of Kanahara here in particular, when he fought Shogun, he was on a three-fight losing streak, all of which were in pride. Um, That featured, uh, he was TKO'd by Vanderlei Silva, lost a clear-cut unanimous decision to Mirko Krokop, Alistair Overeem smashed him, so he hadn't even won under the promotional banner. And now, again, here on the main stage, he's here to essentially be cannon fodder for Shogun, as an introduction to a slightly larger frame of the audience. And Shogun, you, you know, to his credit, if you if they're going to throw you, if you're going to get thrown cannon fodder, you better treat them like cannon fodder. And Shogun does just that. Uh, this is very much a showcase fight for Shogun and his abilities. His takedown defense much improved again. You can see more of his explosion, his explosive capability here, and he's used soccer kicks in the past, but boy, does he use them in this fight! Uh, he just smashes Kanahara with soccer kicks, and then a stomp actually is what winds up finishing it. Just brutal stuff. But it did what it was designed to do. It made Shogun. It further cemented that Shogun was kind of a monster, and led us into his inclusion in one of the most ridiculously stacked tournaments that you will find in MMA. The Pride Middleweight 2005 Grand Prix. Um, for the, if you're potentially confused about the naming here, um, Pride's naming scheme went from heavyweight to middleweight to welterweight. So middleweight in this case was about 205 pounds-ish. It was done in kilos, so I think it was technically like 203, uh, 203 pounds. Uh, I forget the specifics of the conversion ratio there, but uh, that's what it was. It was the 205ers, basically. And this is one of the most insanely stacked fields of talent you'll find. Uh, I'm not going to list all of them, but I'm going to list a bunch of names you might recognize. Uh, Ricardo Arona, Dean Lister... List more for the hardcore fans. Kazushi Sakuraba, Kevin Randleman, Vanderlei Silva, the aforementioned Hidehiko Yoshida, Alistair Overeem, Vitor Belfort, Igor Vovchanshin, <laughs> who hardcore fans will recognize, um, Antonio Rogerio Noguera, Little Nog, Dan Henderson, Quentin Jackson, and Shogun. And that's not everybody. <laughs> that is not everybody that was in this tournament. Um, Shogun was an underdog. When you and to be fair, when you look at that assemblage of talent, I mean, good lord, uh, a guy who at the time was entering the tournament at 
um, eight and one, so not even ten professional fights. You know, yeah, I can see why he was the underdog. I mean, the the Pride 2005 Middleweight Grand Prix could be its own show. Like that's how good that <laughs> that tournament was. That's how uh, it produced some genuinely great fights. But Shogun's first round opponent was Quentin Jackson. And this was kind of off of the back of Jackson getting a very, very bad split decision win over Shogun's older brother, Ninja. Um, just brief aside, I know a lot of people kind of stump for the old, for the Pride scoring system, and I'm not saying it's worse than what we have now, but the notion that it never led to bogus decisions is a really faulty one. Uh, the, Pride had its share of questionable, clucky-influenced decisions. Um, and part of that had to do with their scoring criteria. Um, and I don't want to get too far off on the tangent. <laughs> but it just, if, you're, if you ever find someone who's like, no, Pride scoring was always better, uh, watch the Jackson, the Jackson and Ninja fight. Um, Big Nog, uh, Minotauro... And his fight with uh, Rico Rodriguez was a very, very questionable decision that went his way. That went Nogueira's way. Uh, it it did happen, and it was not. It, uh, so, just point being, it was not a perfect system by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this fight is one of those. This is basically Shogun's, I think, coming out party. If we look at him finally stepping up to a guy who is legitimately ranked very highly if we talk about you know world rankings um, at the time for Jackson uh, he'd only he had he had both of his fights with Vanderlei Silva that he lost but uh, he'd only lost I think four times in pride he lost his debut when he just struggled with the back control of Kazushi Sakuraba had a DQ um, in just 14 seconds. Jeez, I haven't seen that fight in a long time. But was on a, went on a long winning streak, um, including stopping Chuck Liddell cleanly. Uh, very clean corner stoppage. Lost to Vanderlei. Uh, this was post his epic, forever, in, forever highlighted slam of Ricardo Arona. That powerbomb out of the triangle choke. Uh, so... Point being, Jackson, very well regarded on the world level. And Shogun hands him probably the worst beating of his entire career. I mean, again, Vanderlei had knocked him, had stopped him twice, and knocked him out clean the second time. But both of those fights went into the second round. Well, sorry, the second one did. The first round, the first one ended in the first round at six minutes and change. But Rampage had success against Vanderlei. He was able to secure some takedowns. He landed some good punches, uh, some on the feet, some on the ground. So it he lost and he lost clean, but it wasn't like he got blown out of the water. Shogun, if you have never seen this fight, if if there's one Shogun fight, if there's only one that makes you want to understand how good he was in his prime, I'd probably go with this one. It is just a beautiful display 
of what Shogun brings to the table. Um, Rampage at the time was struggle had a struggled with a really good double collar tie, and Shogun employs that he batters him to the body with knees. He breaks his ribs actually, uh, <laughs> with one fairly early. Uh, even when Rampage is able to force a more of a body clinch, uh, Shogun is still assaulting him with knees. He's cutting Rampage off, gets him into a corner fairly quickly every time they're at distance, and unloads. Um, finishes it with soccer kicks. Uh, again, there's if you want to argue that you know maybe the loss to Fedor that Rampage had recently was worse, and that he just got you know knocked out one punch pretty cleanly. Rampage is at this point so far removed from anything approximating fighting shape and his fighting prime that I'm not sure how fair it is to count it. This was a... Look at Rampage after this fight. He does not know what happened to him. (laughs) Like, he is just... He is in shock. This... I think the two worst losses of Rampage's entire career, this and his fight with John Jones, maybe. And the Jones fight was not as violent as this. Shogun put him through a wood chipper very, very quickly. And it's it's a beautiful display of Shogun's abilities. In the next round, Shogun would fight Little Nog. And this fight is an all-time great fight. Uh, this is also going to be one of my big pieces of evidence for, again, understanding Shogun... His how his ground and pound was really kind of the key to understanding a lot of his success. Um, Shogun struggles on the feet with Nogera. He lands some good kicks, but anytime they get into the pocket, uh, Little Nog had better boxing. I mean, he clips uh, Shogun with a right hook that drops him to his seat. Um, Nogera constantly kind of gets the better of the boxing exchanges. Uh, he, Shogun just doesn't really have the combination work. He would have a good right, but then kind of stall out in the pocket, and Nogera would tag him a few times before they clinched up. Look at the number of times Shogun gets takedowns. He, Anytime they wind up punching into the clinch, Shogun decides, I like being on top better. And uh, Shogun's just constantly, uh, anytime they tie up, inside trip, outside trip, uh, he they both try sacrifice throws at various points, and Shogun just, on top, able to consistently work his ground and pound, and I'm willing... I also tend to include, you know, soccer kicks in that description. Your opponent's grounded, you're pounding on him, and under this rule set, it's legal to knee and kick the head of a downed opponent, so standing over somebody kicking them, I think probably should technically... I tend to qualify it as ground and pound because they're on the ground, especially for prolonged periods of time. Um, You can also see a few minor uh, attacks that Shogun starts showing off a little bit here. He tries showing off um, this kind of like step-through stomp. Um, So if he's standing, he's got both of Nogera's ankles, he'll try to shoot one of his legs through the guard, so through the legs, and then stomp onto the head. Uh, it's a technique that actually leads into his finish of Ricardo Arona in a couple of fights. And, again, it's a nice little technique. Um, if there's a if there's a few knocks on this fight, for if we're talking just about Shogun's performance, 
His cardio isn't quite necessarily where you'd want it to be, but this is the first time... I think this is his only decision... This isn't his only decision in his entire Pride run. It is his first. Uh, this is, I think, the longest fight of Shogun's entire career to this point. Because uh, we're going the full distance here, so a full 20 minutes. A 10-minute first round, 5-minute second, 5-minute third. And, yeah, nothing else really even comes close. Um... So, easily the longest fight. And the first time a fighter winds up going that 20-plus minutes or so, uh, it's a shock. It's a shock to the system. It's an experience you need to have physically to really get a full... You can prepare for it to a certain degree, but there is a little bit of X factor there. And the other thing that kind of... if Again, if I'm going to be nitpicky, Shogun's footwork is not great. He gets flat very quickly. And... That is a habit that will uh, kind of dog him throughout his career. But nonetheless, he wins. And if you haven't seen the first fight with him and Noguera, look it up. Great fight. Uh, again, all-time great fight. But that does lead us to um, the fin- the semis and then the finals of this particular Grand Prix that would take place at uh, Final Conflict. So this would be in August of 05. He first squares up with Alistair Overeem. Um might be shocking to some of you if you never saw Alistair Overeem when he was competing as a light heavyweight. Uh, it can be an odd thing to look back on. This was pre... I hate to say pre-roids, but uh, probably was. <laughs> I mean, there was no rule against it in Pride. Pride had no drug testing at all. And then all of Overeem's K1 time, and K1 doesn't drug test. I mean, if you're entering into an organization where it's not against the rules to... Uh, use various performance-enhancing drugs, you're just pointlessly handicapping yourself by not doing it. Uh, but this is one of the... I think, you know, again, he gets hurt by Noguera, but this is, I think, one of the more obvious kind of fights where Nogu- where uh, Shogun really wants this fight on the ground. Um, they battle for clinch position a lot, and Overeem is a very good clinch fighter. Um, anytime they're at distance, Overeem is technically superior. Uh, Shogun has to work very, very hard to get his takedowns here, and he does. In fact, uh, his wrestling from his knees at times is quite good. And once he gets on top, Shogun's passing is really, really kind of rears its head here, and that's a. Again, a big part of what he's able to do that's that, that leads into the finish is he's able to get full mount and Overeem can't get him off and he just kind of gets overwhelmed with blows. Uh, that again, would lead into the finals, a uh, fight with Ricardo Arona that he would win a uh, little under three minutes. And again, the finish, that step through stomp. The stomp doesn't land, but he does pass through the guard easily, land some pretty vicious uh, hammer fists actually. Uh, that knock him out. If you're looking at some of the other stuff, he lands good knees from the clinch. Uh, he winds up on his back, but he has some good submission attempts. He has some uh, submission attempts that lead into sweeps to just kind of you know, force the scrambles to get things into a position that he wants them to be in. Uh, it, this is a... This is such a really, really amazing run that Shogun... I mean, just think about this for just one second. In the space of one year, 
in the space of, in fact, um, the Jackson fight takes place in April. So between April and August of 2005, he stops Rampage, beats Little Nog, stops Overeem, and stops Arona. And then there's no controversy about any of this. Uh, the, the decision against Nogueira was not controversial. The stoppages were not controversial. This guy tore through a tournament of the probably the best light heavyweights in the world. And he stopped all but one of them. And the one that went the distance, it was not a disputed decision. He won. I... Uh, it is an it is an absolutely incredible run, and you might think that he should be fighting for the actual title at this point, but that was always kind of held up by the fact that Vanderlei Silva was the champion, and they were very good friends. He just wasn't willing to you know, throw that away to fight for the title. Uh, I don't. Know, it, it's a decision that he made, and you know. Uh, I, he doesn't seem to have any regrets about it. Um, but I think kind of co- the fact that he wasn't you know, really a, a factor in the title picture led to some, you know, slightly different matchmaking. And, in fact, his next fight after riding high like that was a fight with former UFC heavyweight champion Mark Coleman. And this would go down as Shogun's only loss in pride, and it's a somewhat freak injury uh, that he sustains. Uh, Coleman kind of goes for a high crotch single. Uh, Shogun tries to post as he's being taken down. All the weight goes onto the elbow, and the elbow goes the wrong direction. Uh, it dislocates his elbow. Injury-related stoppage. Uh, but it's a, it's a win. It's a win for Coleman. Um, it, it kind of sucked for Shogun, but injury losses happen. Um, on the plus side, it did not keep him out for very long. He was only out for about six months. He returns and fights Cyril Diabate, a name that some people might recognize. Uh, Diabate fought a few times in the UFC. Um, this was another again ground and pound showcase for Shogun. Um, one of the other things that Shogun was good about doing, if you watch some of his Pride fights, he's good about elbowing the body. Pride had a rule where you could not elbow the head. Uh, didn't matter whether you, were on, whether you were on the ground or on the feet, you couldn't elbow the head. And he was good about finding elbows to the body. And he lands some nasty ones to the kidney here against Diabate and... Uh, just kind of shows that he has returned to form. And this, uh, the Diabate fight in particular starts a string of almost inadvisable frequency of fights. Um, the Coleman fight takes place in February of 2006. He returns in September of 2006 to fight Diabate. In October, he fights Kevin Randleman and submits him with a knee bar uh, one of the nastier knee bars you'll see, actually. Uh, the fight itself, not a whole lot. Uh, Randleman gets an early takedown, but kind of gets swallowed in the leg lock position. Uh, Shogun goes for a toehold early. Uh, nearly gets it. Probably could have switched to the knee bar much sooner than he does. Does eventually switch to the knee bar. Gets the tap. 
And then in December, so from October 21st of 06, he then fights Kazuhiro Nakamura on December 31st, 2006. So that's three fights in a really short period of time. That's Again, that's almost inadvisably frequent, especially when you consider that after the December fight, he fights in February of 07 against Alistair Overeem in a rematch of their fight and knocks him out. Um, that's that's just a really crazy uh, sequence of fights. So in in the space of again less than a less than a calendar year, actually, if we include the Coleman fight, it's just about a year. The twenty sixth of February to the twenty fourth of February, from oh six to oh seven, he fights five times, and the last three or four of those in very rapid succession. That is a deeply inadvisable pace to fight at. Um, you know, I. I know a lot's made of, you know, the lack of drug testing in Pride and everyone kind of makes the steroid jokes. While I'm sure there was, you know, various PED use going on, I think a bigger thing, if you look at Pride and understanding the physical toll that fighting takes, especially the... Pride had a reputation, fairly deservedly, for having just brutal fights. You had to be kind of a savage to fight in that organization and really succeed. I imagine that if we're talking about, you know, drugs that got used and arguably abused, it probably had less to do with steroids and a little bit more to do with um, you know, painkillers to try and deal with that kind of pacing of events. It's, uh, yeah, again, a deeply inadvisable pace that he can, that he fights at, but... Again, he wins all of those fights. Uh, the Nakamura fight's a little bit lackluster. Um, some of that's down to Nakamura's toughness. Some of that's down to, I think, the pacing. Again, he fought very, very close together. And it, it just resulted in kind of a lackluster performance all, all around. Again, another fight that will sh- kind of show off his preference for takedowns and ground and pound over standing with someone who's if Shogun was really the stand-up striker that people made him out to be, he would have fought this fight in particular very differently. And then again, that leads into the Overeem rematch, where Shogun does a good job of avoiding boxing distance. Uh, he's also much better this time around, especially relative to their first fight, about using the clinch to transition to takedowns rather than deciding to just fight in the clinch. And he gets top position and hits one of the most beautiful, like, when I talk about how his ability to kind of link kinetic motion together, watch the finishing sequence of the second Overeem fight, and you'll get uh, the punch that he lands kind of pushing off and kicking upwards to lunge himself forward from being kind of an Overeem's guard is a thing of beauty. And that thing, and that's post the Coleman loss... So he, and around this time, Pride winds up shutting down. The UFC buys it. Uh, people wind up moving into the, migrating into the UFC, including Shogun. Shogun, at this point in time, is considered probably the best light heavyweight in the world. He closes out his entire Pride run with a record of 12-1. and one, The one loss being the injury to, in the Coleman fight. 
this string it includes, again, so many big victories. The Rampage victory, the Little Nog victory, twice over Overeem. Uh, he was thought to be the best light heavyweight in the world, and not to potentially get off on too big a tangent here, but I don't think there was ever a time when Chuck Liddell was the best light heavyweight in the world. Uh, I I just don't. That's not to say he was never a good one. He was. Chuck was pretty much usually a one of the five best light heavyweights in the world, and that's absolutely saying something in, impressive, especially for someone as long as he was kind of in that position. He was. I just don't think there was ever a time when he was the best, and that includes once we get into you know Shogun's UFC debut. Shogun comes in. Largely thought to be the best, in no small part because when he enters, the UFC light heavyweight champion is one Quentin Rampage Jackson, who had knocked out Chuck Liddell, and I think he defeated Dan Henderson at this point as well. And it's kind of looming large in everyone's mind when you think about Jackson, even though he's on a great run, is the fact that Shogun tore through him like a hot knife through butter. (laughs) And... Shogun comes into his UFC debut and he's matched up with Forrest Griffin. And Griffin at the time, um, I don't want to get too deep into Forrest Griffin here, but I think some of this is is important to understand. Griffin is only one fight removed from getting knocked out by Keith Jardine. Um, And that's not a slight on Jardine to pretend that that doesn't mean anything. Jardine very solid, you know, upper-level journeyman kind of fighter. But if he was knocking you out, that, you know, that was not necessarily the best indicator of your upper-bound career potential. On the plus side, Forrest seems to have taken that loss, and if we look at him, if we apply total hindsight to the man's career, taken the appropriate lessons from it. Um, kind of going into that fight and through a lot of uh, Griffin's UFC run, he seems to have thought of himself and kind of fallen in love with this notion of being kind of a one-dimensional brawler, putting on fans that'll get the fighter, the fans happy, and that cost him big in the Jardine fight. He rebounded with a, not a gimme-gimme, but a slightly softer touch. He fought Hector Ramirez and then fight Shogun, for crying out loud. Forrest seems to have kind of dispelled his internal notion that he has to be this fan-friendly brawler and starts fighting to more of his strengths overall as a fighter and happens to run into Shogun at kind of the perfect time. Shogun came into this fight uh, with some knee injuries that clearly affected his performance and his training, and that's not to say, let me be clear, I am not saying that Forrest only won because Shogun had a knee injury. We just can't pretend that it wasn't a factor. Um, The fight is really kind of Forrest's coming out party. I might argue, there's a very real argument that this is his crowning achievement, and this is a guy who went on to win the UFC title. Uh, he He would, off the back of this win, actually, he would go on to defeat Rampage via unanimous decision. I believe that was the timing there. Yeah, he would uh, would win this fight, go on to beat Jackson for the belt, 
then get knocked out by Rashad Evans in his first title defense. Um, but again, not a Forrest Griffin podcast. Uh, but Forrest came into this fight very, very well-schooled. Um, he was very aware of Shogun's clinch game and how he likes to go for takedowns there. Uh, he's very aware of Shogun's passing game. So any the times he's on bottom, all Forrest does is close his guard and try to control things. He does not go for a lot of submission attempts. He doesn't go for a lot of scrambles. Anytime he wants to move, he's very calculated about when he wants to do it. And you know, kind of factoring in some of the Shogun's health issues, it you know, it it's a perfect storm. And you know, since we're talking about Shogun specifically, the lack of conditioning and you know, the knee issues that that uh, that kind of I think inspired that or caused that. They play a big role. Forrest pushes. This fight is contested for guys their size at a very high pace. Uh, you see Shogun's mobility issues rear their head fairly quickly. Forrest is moving around Shogun very well, mostly because Shogun is not moving well at all. And uh, this is the first time that Shogun could use elbows offensively. He actually cuts Forrest open pretty badly <laughs> uh, with some elbows from top position. But he ultimately can't maintain the pace. Uh, he winds up giving up his back. Griffin gets a choke. And, again, I might genuinely argue the biggest win of his career. Uh, I mean, it's this or the Rampage one, one of those two. And depending on which way you want to argue, you know, it's it's one of those two fights. Um, needless to say, an inauspicious, in some respects, debut for Shogun in the UFC he winds up taking a significant amount of time off, uh, well over a year. Um, he has to have surgery to repair the injuries he had going into the Griffin fight. Then he winds up tearing up his ACL again uh, while he, after that, while he's kind of in recovery. Uh, it's around that time I think he also has the issue where uh, he had a transplant ACL surgery, so I believe the cadav- they use a cadaver tendon, or ligament, excuse me, and then just replace it, and his body rejected it. Uh, sorry, no, I'm, I'm completely confusing who I'm talking about. Nope, sorry, strike that. Uh, he just ruptured his ligaments again and wound up having to go through a second surgery. Because uh, he, he was supposed to return at UFC 85, um, and again, the knee injury wound up sidelining that. He finally returns at not UFC 93, in a rematch with Mark Coleman, and this fight has kind of gone down in a little bit of infamy. Um, Coleman hadn't... Shogun, again, coming off of at least a year-plus layoff. Coleman hasn't fought in over two years. Mark Coleman is 17 years older than Shogun. Um, and the fight... I think this technically got fight of the night, but... Uh, was not a great fight. Um, yeah, officially it was your fight of the night. Kind of an odd choice, actually. That probably, I think, if we're talking about what was the best fight technically, should have gone to Henderson and Franklin, which was your main event. Um, but the UFC didn't really like giving fight of the night to fights that didn't end via finish. So... <laughs> 
they're they're look if you want a post fight bonus all you have to do is appeal to Dana White's sensibilities and even though this fight got sloppy it it apparently did um if we're and if we're looking at Shogun you can tell the time off is an issue you can tell he's still a little flat on his feet He's not quite as comfortable in the cage as you would like. His fence wrestling is still not not quite the level you want it to be. He's still working on it, but it's not quite all the way there yet. Uh, one of the things you do see, he starts to use a kind of semi-shifting left hand that will become very relevant in his next fight. Just uh, If he starts orthodox, and it's a really nice punch, he's... It's starting orthodox, but instead of it just being a jab, he kind of drops back, squares his shoulders, and then steps forward, so his right leg is stepping, and his left hand is at the same time as the one being thrown. And it's a nice punch, because if you're stepping with your right, you're kind of incentivizing your opponent to circle into that punch that's coming. And you see a little bit of that... Um, in all honesty, I think if you kind of remove some of the cardio issues that Shogun has, if you were just talking about his skill set and his application thereof, uh, this fight is much more return to form for him than I think initially given credit for. A lot of people initially were just down on this because it went into the third round and he gassed and Coleman was unbelievably gassed and... Uh, to be fair, it's not like those are invalid criticisms, but I, I think a lot of people kind of got fixated on that instead of looking at more of the technical application of his game because it it's much more a return to form than I think a lot of us gave him credit for at the time. But with that win, uh, the UFC matched him up with Chuck Liddell, and this fight is. Not really all that competitive. Um, Liddell at this point is in decline, to put it nicely. Um, Liddell at this particular point in time uh, has lost the title. Again, he lost that to Jackson uh, a couple of years earlier. Would then go on to lose a decision to Keith Jardine. Win a win against Vanderlei Silva in a fight that, in all fairness, is another all-time great fight. One of the few genuine dream fights that comes together and doesn't disappoint. If you can get over the unbelievable biased cheerleading that Mike Goldberg does. But that's a constant threat Liddell fights. Unfortunately for Chuck, he, after the Vanderlei fight, he fought Rashad Evans and was very famously knocked cold in the second round. And then matched up with Shogun. Um, that's a brutal stretch of fights, man. But point being, Chuck is very clearly in decline. Shogun seems to be riding the ship. And the resulting fight is not very competitive. Shogun is very well-schooled for Liddell. His game plan is a little bit of a hybrid of kind of Evans and Jardine. Jardine tore Chuck apart with leg kicks and body kicks. So Shogun uses leg kicks very well to set up some of his other offense. He swings a good overhand. He's got a good high guard. Um, one of the other defensive things about Shogun, his hands, when he's pulling back, he always has them very, very high. 
leaves his body open, and given the stature of MMA gloves, it does provide openings. Other fighters would later in his career start to capitalize on that. But here it works well, just blocking Chucks one or two punches at a time. And then that shifting left is what ultimately does in Liddell. You know, he shifts, lunges, drops him with the left, finishes him. Uh, this is kind of, again, a much more fully prepared and realized version of Shogun than we'd seen in the UFC to this point. He's not rusty from time off. He's not dealing with injuries. And this is the first time you really get a look at what a full... I'd say full power, but you know the, the full breadth of Shogun's abilities in the UFC. And it results in a very memorable finish. Um, in fact, if you're in a, I don't know, schadenfreude-esque mood, um, listening to Mike Goldberg actually say on commentary, oh no, as Chuck Liddell gets hit with that left. Um... Again, if you're if you're in one of those moods and you want to kind of drink in another human being's temporary misery, uh, poor Mike Goldberg. Anytime Chuck got, <laughs> anytime Chuck got finished, oh, poor guy. Um, but this now leads into Shogun's title opportunities in the UFC. He is matched up with Lyoto Machida. Machida is fresh off of. Uh, kind of blowing out Rashad Evans. Machida is undefeated at this point. And Machida's run up to the title and his title win and whatnot gets, I think, a contemporary discussion forgotten, uh, overlooked, because of how this fight goes and then the next one. Uh, but Machida was a real problem to try and solve in the cage. I mean, the number of people that Machida gave their first loss to is fairly significant. Uh, he's the first guy that beat Rich Franklin. He was the first guy that beat uh, Rashad Evans. He was the first guy that beat Eric Anders. That was years later. Uh, several others as well. The The man was a legitimate, and still is, he's still fighting. He's not what he used to be, but he's you know, still quite good. But at the time, he was a legitimate problem. Um, I mean, his performance against Rashad Evans was so good. Uh, Joe Rogan capped off that call by saying, welcome to the Machida era, because... You kind of thought, you know, who's going to beat this guy? Well, enter a fully prepared Shogun, and we get their first fight. Their first fight goes the distance, and is somewhat contentiously scored. Uh, officially, it's a 3-2 to two for Machida. So, 48-47, uh, all three scorecards. Uh, watching it live when I did that, uh, when I watched this fight live, I think I leaned towards Machida. Rewatching it this time, for whatever it's worth, given how I was watching it, I scored it for Shogun. I gave Shogun rounds 2, 4, and 5. Um, Shogun is very, very well prepared for Machida. He does a lot of very good work with inside leg kicks and with body kicks, because they're opposite stance fighters. He does a little bit of... It's kind of referred to as the southpaw double attack, but the reality is any either fighter can use it if you're in an open stance. Uh, it's just a rear leg, so a power leg kick, followed by, when you reset, a power hand straight. Uh, Mirko Krokop used to tear people up with that. 
just fire a left kick to the body or the inside leg. But when the leg gets back, plant, throw a straight left. And he, he tore a lot of guys up with that. And Shogun does a little bit of that. His obviously coming from the right-hand side in this case. In this fight. And it serves him well when he chooses to employ it. Uh, they do a fair bit of clinch fighting in this fight. This is, interestingly enough, uh, this is the first time in Shogun's entire pride and UFC careers that he fails to secure a takedown in a fight where he attempts at least one. Uh, not to say he was 100% with takedowns, but in every other fight of his in Pride in the UFC, if at some point in the fight Shogun attempted it at least one takedown, he got at least one takedown. This is the first time he gets none despite trying for them. So again, Machida had parts of his game scouted. Others, not so much. Shogun seems to have a feel for his timing fairly early on. Uh, he's a lot better about cutting off the cage in this fight, and maybe that's a consideration of his opponent who he knows he's going to have to get ahead of rather than follow around. And uh, at the end of the day, officially it goes to Machida. I know it was a slightly con it was very contentious at the time. There were some people who scored it for Machida. A lot of people scored it for Shogun. Uh, so the UFC books an immediate rematch. And this is, uh, Shogun said something interesting, I think in the aftermath of this fight, that in the first fight he prepared for Machida by focusing a lot on his legs and you know, the ability to find his timing for landing kicks to the leg and body. And that was where a lot of his focus was offensively after their first fight. And you can see this in the closing. You can actually see him do this a little bit real time at the in the fifth round of their first fight. He stops focusing as much on the legs and starts realizing that Machida carries his hands very, very low. And with proper timing and explosive ability, he can hit him in the head. And he focuses a lot more on that in this fight. You can see it very, very early. He's a lot more focused on getting that first explosive step, coming in with a bevy of punches and offsetting Machida like that. He also has a feel for Machida's, some of Machida's patterns in this fight. One of Machida's favorite techniques, and he landed this several times on Shogun in their first fight, and it, it hurt him a couple of times, is a stepping left knee to the body. And it's a good technique. I mean, it's a favorite of Machida. He dropped Tito Ortiz with it. He dropped plenty of guys with it. Uh, in this instance, this leads into the finish because Machida has a pattern of if he lands it, if you stick close to him, you clinch up and you start working from there. If you back off, his he likes to land the knee, step back, take half a second to reset, and then fire a straight left. Again, a slight variation on the southpaw double. Instead of a kick this time, it's a knee. Step back, get a read on the situation, and then follow with a punch. Uh, he's really good about doing it on uh, timing it as well, doing it on the half beat. So if you're expecting, you know, knee, step back, step away, attack, it's he's very good about going knee, step back, you step, punch. Okay, you're interrupting your rhythm. Shogun got a feel for that this time because he takes the knee to the body, he steps away, and he anticipates that left and times a beautiful intercepting right over the top of it, uh, catches Machida on the temple, drops him, gets on top, pounds him into unconsciousness. 
Uh, a really nice adjustment from their first fight to their second from Shogun. And he finally, you know, this is a guy that a lot of people thought was going to come into the UFC and become champion in short order. It winds up taking a little bit longer. Uh, he debuts in 07. He doesn't win the belt until 2010. So between injuries and some of what was going on with the uh, title at the time, it just took him a while to get there. But he does get there. And unfortunately, if you're a fan of Shogun, he does not have a lengthy title reign. In fact, he has just one fight where he is champion. He was he was scheduled to fight Rashad Evans. Rashad winds up falling out a few weeks out. I think four weeks out, maybe six. And the UFC winds up offering the title fight to the young, up-and-coming, and not literally undefeated, but essentially undefeated, rising phenom, John Jones. Uh... Very famously, Jones officially gets the invite for that fight in the cage after he just beats the crap out of Ryan Bader. And on short notice, again, I think about six weeks, somewhere between four and six, uh, Mauricio Shogun Hua, an all-time great light heavyweight even then, and still now I think he's the third best light heavyweight of all time, runs into the best light heavyweight that the sport has ever seen by a fairer margin (laughs) and is just on the receiving end of one of the all-time great beatdowns that you will ever see, especially if you consider how good Shogun is. That's so important to understanding. If you want to talk about how impressive this is from John, there's a lot that John does in this fight that is incredibly impressive on its own merits. Doing it against Shogun is what makes it unbelievably special. Uh, Jones just assaults him from the word go. They touch gloves, circle John, throws a flying knee. Shogun's never quite right after that. They, Jones abuses him in the clinch, gets takedowns. Shogun tries to work his deep half guard. I mean, if you want an indication of how soon you should have known this fight was over watching it, I don't know how many of us did. But there's a moment in the first round when John's on top in half guard, working some ground and pound. Shogun gets the deep half, so he's underhooked the leg, and tries for the same sweep he's used a lot or threatened a lot. And he can't budge John Jones. At that point, the alarm bells were going off. I think to all of us watching, like, oh, he's screwed. Uh, Jones destroys him to the body with knees and elbows on the ground. I mean, the finishing sequence is one of the most brutal you'll find. Jones tees off on him on the ground. Shogun, to his eternal credit and his heart and toughness, fights his way back to his feet backs himself into the fence, hands up around the head to protect them, but his body is severely compromised. Jones digs a vicious left hook to the liver. Shogun starts to crumple. Jones knees him in the head on the way down for good measure. The ref waves it off, and about the same time the ref is stepping in, Shogun 
freaking Hua is tapping out due to strikes. And I don't say that with any degree of... I don't judge any fighter for tapping out due to strikes. That's That was a thing that held a degree of, like, shame in the MMA community for a long time. Well, you tapped out to strikes. Yeah, you save yourself brain trauma. Bunch of more... Sorry, the, the stigma attached to that really bothers me at this point. But yeah, Jones just massacres Shogun. It is an all-time great beatdown that I think gets sadly forgotten, made more impressive by how good Shogun is. And Shogun's post-title career is an interesting one. He puts on some genuinely great fights. Uh, the first thing he does post-fight, post-title, is a rematch with Forrest Griffin. Uh, this one goes, I think, the way everyone expected their first fight to go. Um, Shogun has better mobility. He moves around. He's still lunging a little bit, but he's got a good feel for Forrest. He has a good read on an uppercut. Forrest, any time he would try to close distance, did a lot of ducking with his head. And he clips him with uppercuts constantly. And again, another instance of his killer instinct. He hurts Forrest a little. It wobbles him. Forrest kind of goes down, and Shogun just will not let him off the hook. And it was kind of a thought, you know, let's you know maybe see if we can get Shogun back into title contention. And coming off of this fight... Shogun will be matched up with Dan Henderson. Uh, This fight... I mean, what is there to say about this fight? This is another all-time great fight. This is one of the... Jeez. One of the five best fights in MMA history. And when you get to the top five, you know, where you rank one through five is kind of down to personal preference. I think this is absolutely one of those top five. It's a... It is a beautiful, beautiful display of MMA. Uh, This was the first... This was not the first fight uh, under the UFC's new policy. At the time, uh, prior to this, the UFC had a policy that only title fights would go five rounds. Um, One event before this was the first time the UFC instituted a main event, even if it's a non-title fight, will be five rounds. That fight ended in the second round, I think. It's a fight between Chris Lieben and Mark Munoz. So we hadn't seen a fight go five rounds that wasn't a title fight. These two gentlemen did, and they... Again, when I say this is an all-time great fight, I absolutely mean it. This fight, what those two men left in the cage was remarkable. Um, One of the things that you can see in this fight is Shogun still struggles in the pocket, and that's a bad place to struggle against Dan Henderson, especially at this point in his career. Henderson's not a very diverse fighter at this point in time. Um, He's a good wrestler as far as his clinch work goes, but he's not looking to wrestle much. He's looking to land his right hand because Dan Henderson has absurd power. And struggling in the pocket against a guy with that kind of power is a really bad thing. And it shows here as Dan wins the first three rounds. I wouldn't say comfortably because it's a fight. He's put in danger in places. He's hit flush. But if we're talking about scoring, I think the first three rounds go to Henderson. And I don't think there's a tremendous amount of controversy there. 
Um, if we're looking at this fight as it pertains to Shogun, there's a few things. One, you still see him looking for takedowns, especially from the clinch. He still favors ground and pound. He still favors top position. That's where he likes to work. One of the things about this fight that should be a bigger indicator, should have been a bigger indicator of his decline than it was. I think we're all just so enamored of the fight itself that we didn't take a look at Shogun in particular. Well, not a lot of us at any rate. Um, there's a few things that Shogun doesn't do in this fight. He doesn't kick a whole lot. Now, some of that might be purely a defensive uh, consideration. Some of that might be a cardio consideration as the fight wears on, but he doesn't kick a lot. He does not use his knees offensively when they're in the clinch very much. If you compare his clinch work, and I don't mean um, your overall efficacy. I mean, just look at the weapons he chooses to use in the clinch between the fight with Rampage and this fight. There is a wild, wild difference. He does not use them very often doesn't use his kicks very much, and gets drawn into punching exchanges with Dan Henderson, and that, I think, ultimately leads to his undoing in some very real ways. Um, that said, uh, Shogun's rally in rounds four and five, after the battering he took in the first three, is absolutely the stuff of legend. Um, I've mentioned before, you know, my scoring on some of these fights when re-watching them. For whatever it's worth, when I watched this fight live, I thought it should have been a draw. Rewatching it, I think it should have been a draw. I give Henderson the first three rounds, and there's a near 10-8 for Henderson there, but he doesn't quite get there for me. By contrast, the fifth round is about three and a half to four minutes of Shogun in full mount. And... That kind of positional dominance combined with the flurries that he does land. And again, I don't think Henderson lands anything in the fifth. To me, that should have been a 10-8. We should have had a draw. Uh, my opinion, still, all-time great fight. Uh, just an absolute, absolutely brilliant and brutal affair. Um I'm gonna I've gone kind of in order to this point, so I'm going to jump around for the last couple of fights... Um, just because I, I think you kind of get the idea. And I think that first Henderson fight is kind of the final start of Shogun's real physical decline. And to be fair, between the beatdown from John and the war with Henderson and all the years leading up to this and all the injuries, who could blame the guy? It, it happens to everybody. And I think that's kind of the point when it really started to kick in for Shogun. Uh, and, I mean, the man kept fighting. He uh, he kept a fairly decent clip since then. He would go on to... I'll list these very quickly, and then I have a few that I want to talk about. He would beat Brandon Vera in a four-round fight, lose to Alexander Gustafson, get submitted by Chael Sonnen, knock out James Tahuna. They would have a rematch with Dan Henderson. He was tearing Dan Henderson up in that rematch, if you don't recall their rematch off the top of your head. Shogun was a lot more mobile. He was kicking a lot more. Uh, Henderson was a lot less mobile at that point. All Henderson had was, you know, powerful punches, usually in the pocket. And Shogun, just with the smallest of openings, leaves one and given MMA gloves, 
small openings are all you need. Henderson clips him with a hook, exiting the pocket, and finishes him. But uh, Henderson was getting chewed up in that rematch. Gets knocked out by Ovin St. Prue in 34 seconds. Uh, they would have they scheduled a rematch of his fight with Nogueira. This would be in August of 15, 2015. So only, you know, about a decade after their original encounter, uh, he would win via unanimous decision. Another really good fight. I don't think it's as good as their initial encounter, but it's 10 years later for both of those guys, and they've both been through the ringer in terms of both fights and injuries. How could it be? would win a split decision over Corey Anderson that he probably should have lost, would beat John Volante, would get knocked out by Anthony Smith, beat Tyson Pedro in a fight that he also struggles in, and then fights to a draw with Paul Craig in his most recent fight. Um, again, there's a few of these I want to touch on slightly more specifically. Um, I think the two that, believe it or not, the two that I think highlight his physical decline the most... One's a win, one's a loss. Um, and it, it, first of all, is the John Volante fight, which is a win. He gets a TKO stoppage in the third round. But look at that fight. If you really want to like juxtapose Shogun's performance in that fight versus any of his earlier fights. I mean, you know, look at either of the Machida fights. Look at the Liddell fight. Look at any of his pride fights. And you'd be hard-pressed to say it's the same fighter. He is unbelievably flat on his feet. He's very plodding with his footwork. His offense is incredibly repetitive. And it's almost all punches. Uh, and it's almost all headhunting. It's just a very, very kind of pedestrian, flat-footed brawl. And it was... I remember that... I remember watching that fight and being unbelievably depressed. Because that is just a shell of what Shogun used to be. And he still... I mean, he wins. But... You can juxtapose the performances and you'll under... You might understand why... That was such a downer of a fight. And then the last one I think I want to touch on briefly is the loss to Anthony Smith because this is probably the... This is one of the two worst losses of Shogun's career. There are... The loss to OSP occurs in, you know, 30-some-odd seconds and is a bad one, but I think the two bad losses in Shogun's career in terms of the physical damage he takes and how one-sided it is, the Jones fight and the Smith fight. Um, in the Smith fight, Shogun's right hand is constantly out of position. He doesn't have a lot of footwork. He kind of comes on in straight lines and comes in the same way, which is what leads into the finish. Comes in on a straight line and walks into a very, very stiff one-two. Backs up with his hands high, but Anthony Smith, to his credit, seems to have a feel for... Shogun's defensive position with his hands because he punches around the guard a lot. And the the enduring image of you know Shogun falling, he gets hit with an elbow kind of around the temple, cut open badly. And he's unconscious at that point, or very nearly so. Sh uh, Smith punches him a few more times. 
He's unconscious against the fence, and it's the the you know, the kind of image of him unconscious, spouting blood from his forehead, falling over against the fence as referee Mark Goddard tries to kind of catches him around the head and neck to cradle him from impacting. <laughs> it's onto the canvas, and then he tries to get up from his knees and keep going, and he's very clearly and very badly, you know, rattled and concussed at that point. And it's, again, it's kind of a depressing image, but it is one that I think comes to much more fighters than you think. The the vast majority of fighters, uh, you know, you don't go out on your own terms most of the time. And you ver- you almost never go out on your feet. And I know he's fought since then, but those two fights, I think, if you look at those two and then kind of juxtapose who Shogun used to be with how he fights in those two encounters, um, it tells a very, very stark picture of the physical realities and the physical toll of this sport on anyone, including someone who is, a, the I think, the third best light heavyweight of all time. I think if we're talking about the best light heavyweights the sport has ever seen, it's John Jones, Daniel Cormier, and Shogun Hua. In his prime, in the best version of himself, Shogun was a dynamo. A absolute phenom. He could fight at long range with powerful kicks. He could do wild athletic stuff. He was a monster at getting you down and punishing you from top position. And it's unfortunate that so much of what made him so great kept deteriorating along with his knees. And it's obvious why, if you look at his early stuff, how reliant he can be on that kind of explosive motion. And he works a little bit to compensate for it as his career goes on. But as his knees kept going, uh, his fighting kept going down, his movement slowed down, his offense became much more limited to just punching, which, as we mentioned, technically never his strong suit. Powerful, yeah, he's got power, but he was never a very technically proficient puncher or boxer. And at this point in his career, that's basically what he's leaning on. And he doesn't really have the technique there to kind of support that. And that's, again, that happens to every fighter, man. Every fighter goes through that point when some part of their game goes away either through technical maturation of the sport, physical deterioration, or some combination thereof. It happens to everybody. And, again, even someone who is an absolutely unequivocal all-time great. And make no mistake, Shogun is an all-time great. He His run in pride is the stuff of legend, His run to the UFC title is certainly nothing to sneeze at. His post-title career holds one of the best fights ever. And at this point, I don't think he should be fighting anymore, but that is not my decision to make. Uh, I mean, again, and someone who was scheduled to have a fight in 2020, the UFC was, I think they had either planned or actually signed uh, a third fight between him and Little Nog. Which is about the only thing 
either of them should be doing if they're going to be fighting at this point. And he's he's just uh, he again, the man is an absolute legend. His ability to mix in takedowns, uh, his ability to kind of misdirect you, I think, with his mystique. A lot of people who didn't look at his fights very critically were caught off guard when he took them down, and then were unprepared in some respects to deal with his top game. He was a physical dynamo, uh, a man who could cover distance quickly, who could explode in very, very impressive fashion. It's just a, a very quick step and then in a, an explosion of motion and suddenly you were in trouble. He was a buzzsaw at his best and an absolute legend, an all-time great, uh, unequivocally. And I think that is the appropriate note to end this on. So, thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. Um, I've been having some fun with these. Uh, again, the cruise one that went up a couple of weeks ago, this one for Shogun. They're time-intensive, because I like to go through a lot of, the, as many of their fights as I can, and then, you know, notes, assemblage of thoughts. But, given the lack of fights going on in the world right now, uh, it's something to help keep me occupied, hopefully something to help entertain all of you. Uh, if nothing else, if if this makes even just a few people's lives a little bit easier, um, then you know what? I'm happy to continue doing it. I mean, I'm happy to continue doing it just, again, as a project to keep myself busy, so... Hopefully all of you have enjoyed this, gotten something out of it, and if you have a request, I, I'm i happy to, I don't know how many people might not be doing the Twitter thing, but if you're on some other, if you're on a more permanently request-based platform, something like uh, you know, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or what have you, um, you, and you don't want to take up a full you know review or comment... <laughs> section, then feel free to send me a tweet if you have a fighter that you would like me to do one of these on. Uh, you can find me at WinfreeMMA. Um, or if you're on YouTube, um, feel free to leave a request in the comments section if you've got a fighter that you would like, you think I would enjoy talking about, or uh, that you, you know, would just want to hear my take on. I'm happy to take requests for this particular series of stuff. I've done a few that were just kind of for me. Uh, my deep dive on Volkanovski was just kind of for me, and a lot of you seem to have enjoyed that, so thank you very much, by the way. Uh, my cruise one was a bit of a personal project and a request from a friend who's a big fan of Dominic Cruz. I got a request for Shogun, and now we have one for Shogun. So if you've got one that you're uh, that you'd be interested in, feel free to leave me a comment. Feel free to tweet me. I'm happy to Except happy to take requests. Uh, I will see you next time, ladies and gentlemen. Then uh, please feel free to follow the 411 Podcasting Network. We're on all your major uh, podcast providers again: um, the uh, Google Play, uh, Chrome Podcasts. I think is the other one. Um, no, that would be Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iTunes. I th we might be on Pandora, uh, Stitcher. 
So any of your major podcast platforms, YouTube or the 411mania.com website, uh, you can find us on all of those. You can find this uh, the 411 Ground and Pound show that this is posted under. You can find the 411 on Wrestling with Larry Zonka. Uh, Larry has plenty of stuff to talk about since the WWE paid the governor of Florida $18.5 million to be declared an essential, <laughs> to get sports declared an essential employee status. So WWE is continuing to run events. So Larry has stuff to talk about, including all the firings they did recently. And the 411 Interviews podcasting series done by Jeff Harris, who is my regular kind of co-host on the Ground and Pound show proper. Uh, very recently, he talked with uh, professional wrestling legend, uh, announcing legend, WWE Hall of Famer, uh, Jim Ross. He had one with Chris Jericho a few weeks ago. So if you're interested, feel free to check out the 411 Interviews series. Jeff does a good job with that. And, again, you can find me here. Uh, when there's MMA to talk about, I'm here to talk about it. I will see you all next time, everyone. Thank you again so very much. Please, please rate, like, comment, subscribe. Share us around. Share this stuff around, man, please. Tell your friends and family about what we're doing here. We are still trying to grow this thing, so thank you very much. For the final time, stay safe out there, and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.